So our hope, our dream this year is that our cups would overflow with the very goodness and mercy of God, that our lives would become different. And that we know that that's not going to happen automatically, that we're going to have to be changed from the inside out, and that the way that that transformation actually takes place is following in the ways of Jesus, to arrange our lives in such a way that the way that he lived his life, his habits, his patterns, his rituals, the things that he did in order for him to have life with his heavenly father. And so throughout the course of this year, we've been talking about living water for an empty age, and we began in January with the way of Jesus. What does it mean to be practicing the way? Then month by month, we're examining, we're experimenting, we are participating in many of these ancient practices that Jesus himself and his followers participated in throughout the centuries. And one of those practices last month was that of prayer. And this month, we're looking at the practice of Sabbath. But I need to begin a conversation on Sabbath in an unconventional, in fact, maybe even a counterintuitive way. I want to begin by telling you about one of my first paying jobs. I worked in this place at the Ridgewood Country Club Tennis Pro Shop, and my job primarily was teaching six-year-old kids how to play tennis, which is a little discouraging because over the course of the weekend, they forget everything that they've learned the week before. And it's also discouraging when you tell them to step with their left foot and they step with their right foot because they don't know their left and their right yet at this point in time. And so I had to learn how to be able to communicate with little kids and to be able to help to bring the joy of what it means to learn a sport together. There were a variety of different tasks in that job, but the reason that I took the job was because of money. You see, I drove a 1982 Buick LeSabre, and it had a cassette recorder in it, and we were in the midst of the beginnings of the digital music revolution, and I wanted a compact disc player in my car, but that was expensive, and so I had to save up my money for that. That's why I took the job. But a funny thing happened after a while of doing the work of working at the tennis shop. I began to fall in love with the work itself. I really began to get to know the kids, to know them by name, to wipe their noses and to wipe away their tears. I loved getting to know their frantic families and being able to hear some of their stories. I would work in the pro shop, and at times I'd have to organize the shoes to make sure that they were easy to find and that you put them in sizes of numerical order so that people would be able to find what they were looking for. The big plate glass windows of that tennis shop that was kind of perched upwards, man, when a rainstorm would blow in, they would get messy, and I'd have to learn how to squeegee the outside of the windows so that people could see clearly. And I discovered in that job that I had a superpower. It was kind of like a mathematical formula that you had to do on a standardized test when you were in school. Rich has 60 kids in tennis camp. 20 of those kids are under the age of 10. 20 of those kids are between the ages of 10 and 14. 20 of those kids are between 14 and 18. How many large Domino's pepperoni and cheese pizzas should Richard buy in order for there not to be too much pizza where it's going to waste or too little pizza where the kids are still hungry? I discovered I was good at that. In other words, I began to love the work itself stringing a racket, the satisfaction of closing up the shop at night, 
that they would trust me with a key and that I would be the one who was the last to leave. I want to tell you that in that moment, I discovered something that is a conviction that I have never let go of, but some of you might disagree with, and that is this conviction. All work has intrinsic value to it. Now, there's plenty of extrinsic value as well, like you may be compensated for your work. There may be accolades. There may be attaboys or girls. There may be recognition. There may be success that comes to it. There may also just be gratitude that comes from a job well done. But I actually believe that work is a gift from God and that work is inherently good. And I also firmly believe that we have lost this in our society today. Sociologists refer to what's on the screen here as the great resignation. According to the New York Times, this last year, over 50 million people resigned their job. Now, many or most of those people resigned their job in order to take another job, but many of them are also leaving the workforce altogether. One of the incredible statistics that I stumbled across that I just couldn't get past in researching this message is this. When you compare prime working men, and the reason men is because women were not in the workforce significantly in the first part of the 20th century. When you take men between the ages of 22 and 54, our prime working years, during the Great Depression, 15% of men were out of work, were out of the workforce, were not doing a job. Last year, according to the Department of Labor, that number was 16%. More prime age working men are out of work right now than during the Great Depression. The obvious contextual difference is is that during the Great Depression, there wasn't enough jobs to go around. There's plenty of work to go around right now, but we've lost our will, our drive, our desire, and our joy of work. A friend of mine by the name of David Bonson, who was in my previous church, has written a book that I commend to you called Full Time, and in that book he says this, if public posturing and marketing campaigns are to be believed, the modern purpose of work can be defined thus, work is what you do so that eventually you won't have to do it anymore. (laughs) Will you say this liturgically with me here starting at work? Work is what you do so that eventually you won't have to do it anymore. So many of the working definitions of work in our head is that it's a necessary evil. It's that something you have to do, but you want to minimize it as much as you can. And the goal is to do as little of it as possible so that one day you don't have to do it any longer. This is very different from what Dorothy Sayers says work is, that it's not supposed to be drudgery, that it's supposed to be a delight, that it's supposed to be a part of our love. And in fact, the way that she defines work is in a beautiful way where she says that work is for the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing. Work has intrinsic value. It is good. 
And the reason that I'm bringing this up as we enter into a month of Sabbath is that I could tell you, hey, we need to rest everybody. And if you don't have the proper theological, biblical, godly view of what work is, you are going to mishear what I am telling you. And my conviction is this. You were not made to rest. You were made to work. And that your work is any effort that creates value or produces a service for others. Now, normal caveats here. I am not talking about works righteousness. I am not talking about that you can work your way into your salvation. I am not talking about that everybody has to have a job because there's a difference between your work and your job. Your work is bigger than your job. You can work in the home and establishing a family. That's a lot of work. It is valuable work. It creates value. It produces things for society. You can work in a volunteer capacity. It is any effort any energy that you bring that creates that value or produces service for the people around you. And yet we have lost our understanding of the gift of God entrusting work to us. So I want to rewind to go very back to the basics of the story to make sure that we all understand what God's invitation to work is. And it starts all the way back in Genesis chapter one when it says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, observation number one, sure you can say, wow, God is really amazing and powerful. But second observation is this, God's a maker. God's a producer. God's a worker. God's an artist. God is a creator. God creates things. Second thing we learn just a few verses later about God, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was what? It was good. This is a pattern that's repeated over and over again. Good, 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 good. So not only is God a maker, a worker, what God makes is good, that the very stuff of creation is a good thing. A little while longer, we learned a couple of other things. That God created us in his own image. That means, at its very fundamental and basic level, that you and I are to reflect the character of God. God's a creator. He's invited us to be co-creator. God is someone who works. We were made in order to work. And part of what that means in doing this in the image of God, we find a couple of things that he gives us things. That in other words, we didn't create this, but he hands it to us and that we get to be stewards of that. That we get to rule over it, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying you have a realm, you have an influence, you have something that you were supposed to steward. And then thirdly, we are to be fruitful, which is not merely a covenant and about how we are to replenish for the next generation, you and I are to be productive. We are to make things that are a part of the fruit of community and society. And so where all this drives to and ahead for me is this. In Genesis chapter 2, it says this, the Lord God took Adam, or the man, and put him in the Garden of Eden to do two things. This is our human job description. We're to work it, and we're to take care of it. 
Two important Hebrew words here in the original language. To take care of it is the verb shamar, which is to keep, to watch, to observe. It is the verb form of a shepherd. You are to shepherd whatever it is in your giftedness and your passion and your vocation and your life. You are to shepherd what God has entrusted to you. Second verb here is even more fascinating. It is the word avodah. Everybody say avodah. This is the word that's in there to say to work it. Fascinating thing, the word avodah in Hebrew means to work, to serve, or to worship. And the only way that you can determine as a translator of the original Hebrew as to what is meant as work or worship, the only way you can do so is on the basis of context. In other words, for God's people, the idea of worship and work were so inextricably tied to one another was that they were so together that they didn't even want to come up with distinct words between the two of them. You were made to worship. A part of your worship is your work. And this is so lost on us in the way that we think of it today. And so I want to invite you into the larger story. In the larger story, and one of the things that we in the church need to repent in the way that we have taught you as followers of Jesus and of learning the way of Jesus is this. We have truncated the larger story of God of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration to just fall and redemption. And if you only see the story as these two things, what ends up happening is everything that is of value gets reduced to church work as opposed to the fact that we are in a larger work of participating in the creation of God and the restoration of that creation. And yes, our sinfulness and the redemption of that sin is a part of the story. It is not the entire story. There is more to it than that. So Thomas Merton summarizes what I think about this very clearly when he says this, all vocations are intended by God to manifest his love for the world. Do you see your calling, your vocation, your work having intrinsic value and that it is a part of the manifestation, the demonstration of God's love to the world? I have some things to say about this today, and I want to be very specific. And so I wrote this down so as to get this right. I would like to address first the young people of the house. The world did not begin with you. Your supervisor isn't there to cater to your every need like your mom or your dad. The world does not exist to orbit around your preferences. Not everything that needs to be learned can be gleaned from watching YouTube videos. Not everyone is going to get rich because they invented an idea for an app. You don't have to publish where you ate on Insta, and I don't need to know what kind of facial moisturizer you use with a link so that you get a kickback. I don't care that your favorite yoga instructor only teaches a 2 p.m. class. Go to an office. Learn from people who have been doing this for a while. Have lunch with fellow workers instead of watching Netflix on your phone alone. Ask questions, work hard, offer to help, show up, pay your dues, and care about your work. Told you I had something to say. But now I want to address the older people. Stop being so grumpy. 
Not all young people are entitled brats. We don't have to do the same way that we've always done it before. The world is changing and fast. You have things to learn too. Your goal should not be to play golf five days a week in a 30-year-long retirement. The world needs you. Your wisdom, your perspective, your effort, your flexibility, tapping out of community and retreating behind your favorite cable news channel does not make you right or happy. Be curious, share your experiences, offer to help or volunteer or come alongside or roll up your sleeves with someone else. We have big problems in the workplace and in society to solve and we can't do it without you. Remember, we won World War II and the Cold War in part because we outpaced the enemy. So don't give up, get close, get in the game. You still have so much to give. I got more to say but I felt like it wasn't fair to pick on young people and older people without addressing ministry leaders like me. What you do is no more important than anyone else. Someone can glorify God just as much in finance and fitness as much as they can in faith. Church members do not exist to prop up your ego or gather a crowd. Don't just tell people what you want from them, but what you want for them. Empower them, equip them, challenge them, comfort them, and most of all, love them. Figure out what is best for them. Help them to find their distinct and their God-given calling to serve those in need and be a daily sign of your eternal kingdom in education and in healthcare and in business or hospitality or in their homes. Teach them to create value and to love God through their work. Teach them that not all ambition is bad, not all success is wrong, that a certain amount of stress is necessary to grow and thrive, that money is not the root of all evil. Be unapologetic in building a great church, but be humble enough to recognize that the kingdom is way bigger than your church. I didn't like writing that one as much because that one cuts a little close to home. I'm going to put a guy on the screen that you probably don't know. His name is Alan Lample. And in January of 1988, he started out working with a Broadway production that was known as Phantom of the Opera. He did this job for 35 years. Over 13,000 shows. Of the 13,198 shows in the longest run ever on Broadway, he did over 13,000 of them. No one ever went to Broadway to say, ooh, I hope that Alan's working tonight. Because Alan was never on the marquee. His name was in very fine print at the bottom. Because Alan was never on the stage. What was his job? He was the chief electrician of the production behind the scenes. But if you've seen the play before, the musical before, you know the scene where the chandelier drops. That was his job. And for 35 years, he made sure that when people bought a ticket and they came to be swept up in a story, to be inspired, to have their hearts soar with music, to be haunted, 
that that was never going to happen unless he did his job. To which I believe heaven and God himself says, it's good. That's good. Now I'm going to put somebody on the screen that you do know. Who's this? Who is this? That's Harrison Ford. Thank you very much. You guys are sleepy today. You didn't get the grandfather clock joke. You didn't get anything. 1977, Harrison Ford. How sore do you think that he is after doing this last Indiana Jones movie, right? Been at this a long, long time. And you know him, and you know his work. What you probably don't know is how he got his break. He got his break because he was a carpenter. And he was working to put a door up in the offices of George Lucas in their casting department. And George Lucas looked over at Harrison Ford and went, there's something about this guy. Hey, would you be willing to read a few lines? And the rest is history. An incredible acting career. To which I believe God says, that's good. That's really, really good. Work has intrinsic value. All of those Genesis passages we read are all before the fall. Yes, work can be frustrating in a fallen world, but it's not bad. It's good. And we've lost our way. And so we need to pray in a month of Sabbath this prayer like the psalmist, may the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. And by the way, the word favor there is the same word for grace. May the grace of the Lord our God rest on us. And why does God's grace rest on you and me? Establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. The grace of God has fallen on you and on me, not so that we can rest, but to do what we were made to do, which is to work. And we've forgotten that. And so I could make a huge mistake. I could get up before you this month and launch into a month of inviting you into Sabbath rest. And if you've forgotten that work is inherently good, you'd hit her with invitation and you'd say, yeah. But you would mishear the initial call of Sabbath. Here it is in Genesis 1. It's the beginning of chapter 2, actually. So on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from the work of creating that he has done. 
The invitation to Sabbath is not rocket science. Six days, do what you were made to do. Then rest. Because you can't really work unless you're willing to stop. Which is what we will tackle this month. And so let us pray. Father, in the great resignation, many of us have given up. We've given up on the fact that work is inherently frustrating when we've forgotten that it's necessarily good. And so I pray that you will help us to to understand that work isn't the kind of thing we do so that we don't have to do it anymore. That work is the kind of thing that's worth doing. And so forgive us in a warped age for thinking that we were made to rest when in reality we were made to be fruitful. We were made to worship. And we can serve you just as much through the quality in the way that we work as we can as we come on a Sunday morning. And so I pray that you will make this community a revival, a renewal, a renaissance of discovering passions and gifts and creativity and vision and love. They would be swept up in the flow of what they get to do each and every day. I pray for people that are out of work and that desperately want it. I pray that you will align their lives to find what they were made to do. I pray for people who are being abused at work. And I pray that you will set them free. And most of all, help us to never lose sight of the fact that we get to be co-creators with you. And that the greatest invitation all the way from the back of creation is that your grace would fall upon us so that our work would not be in vain. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.